Father, you are the maker of the heavens and the earth. You are the maker of our lives, the bodies that we inhabit. You are the one that provides our food, and you are the one that gives us the rain and the sunshine each day. You, Father, are love and mercy and compassion and holiness. Your rectitude, Father, is is perfect in all things. Your judgments also. And we are grateful, Father, we are grateful that you have saved us unto yourself. We, We ask, Father, that as we think about how we respond to the greatness of your presence in our life and in all of creation, and even in our hearts, we pray, Father, in the name of Christ, we pray with all of our heart, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In order, Father, to be more to be more completely transformed and conformed to the image of Jesus. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as I said earlier, I, I want us to, uh, to spend some time thinking about worship again tonight. And I want to begin with us uh, getting our mind around a definition of worship that we're going to, to use tonight as we go through these, these passages found uh, from Genesis to Revelation. Um, the, the definition of worship, and if you want to write this down um, and think about it this week, that, um, that would be awesome. But the definition of worship that I want to give you is this. Worship is the declaration of God's great worth after discovering and experiencing His great worth. Worship is the declaration of God's great worth after discovering and experiencing his great worth. Now this is basically what David is saying in Psalm 34 in verse 3 when he says, and this is the New Revised Standard Version, David writes, Psalm 34 verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt His name together. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. That's an interesting thought. To magnify God. Curious, don't you think? Why do you put something under a microscope or, or why do you put something under a magnifying glass? Is it not to, to make it larger so that you can see it better and in seeing it better to know it better? And that's really what David is, is asking all of us to do. Psalm 34, it is to magnify God. It's to make God big, to make God more easily seen, to know God better, and then to declare His worth. To magnify God and to be overcome by the sheer magnitude and vastness and weightiness and enormity and immensity of God's greatness and His glory. To know His love and His mercy. And when our hearts... And our minds begin to be filled with these kinds of thoughts about God. It overflows into our hearts and the desire is to exalt the kind of God who overwhelms us. That's why it's important for us, I think, to magnify God. To think really big thoughts about God. To to, to magnify God in such a way that we think the largest and most enormous thoughts possible about God. 
And when we begin to have this gigantic image of God in our minds, we stop being merely spectators in worship and we become participants in declaring God's great worth after discovering and experiencing His great worth. There's a, there's a really famous book that came out uh, uh, right after uh, the beginning of the, the 21st century, about 2001, 2002, right in there. Uh, a book by one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard. It's called The Divine Conspiracy, which I, I love the title of the book. And it's, it's a book on discipleship. And one of the issues deals with how do disciples of, of Christ worship God? And I want to read to you a, a little thought-provoking piece um, that begins this way. And I quote, We should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life and that He is full of joy. Undoubtedly, He is the most joyous being in the universe. The abundance of His love and generosity is inseparable from His infinite joy. All of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously, continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and richness. While I was teaching in South Africa some time ago, a young man named Matthew Dickinson took me out to see the beaches near his home in Port Elizabeth. I was totally unprepared for the experience. I had seen beaches, or so I thought, but when we came over the rise where the sea and the land opened up to us, I stood in stunned silence and then slowly walked toward the waves. Words cannot capture the view that confronted me. I saw space and light and texture and color and power that seemed hardly of this earth. Gradually, there crept into my mind the realization that God sees this all the time. He sees it, experiences it, knows it from every possible point of view, this and billions of other scenes, like and unlike it, in this and billions of other worlds, great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through His being. It is perhaps strange to say, but suddenly I was extremely happy for God and thought I had some sense of what an infinitely joyous consciousness He is and of what it might have meant for Him to look at His creation and to find it very good. We pay a lot of money to get a tank with a few tropical fish in it and never tire of looking at their brilliant iridescence and marvelous forms and movements. But God has seas full of them, which He constantly enjoys. We are enraptured by a well-done movie sequence or by a few bars from an opera or lines from a poem. We treasure our great experiences for a lifetime, and we may have very few of them. But He is simply one great, inexhaustible, an eternal experience of all that is good and true and beautiful and right. This is what we must think of when we hear theologians and philosophers speak of Him as a perfect being. This is His life. End of quote. It's no wonder that we read in the Bible so many times of people seeing God in a way that they have never seen Him before and falling on their faces in astonishment and awe. There's Job who encountered God in a whirlwind and was astounded. Isaac, excuse me, Isaiah saw God in the temple and was overcome by the sight. John saw the glorified Jesus and fell on his face in shock and amazement. This is the fact that we have to get straight in our minds and our hearts that worship is about God. 
that worship is about God, the God of the universe that has been magnified in our minds. But here's the thing. Satan also knows this. And as he does in so many other areas of our lives, he tries to switch the order. And to disrupt the worship of God, Satan tempts us to magnify our own problems, to magnify our own issues, our own drama, our own personal agendas, and even to magnify ourselves. And as much as it is important to remember that worship is about God, it's also important to remember maybe uh, we should uh, spend a lot of time thinking about this, in fact, that as much as worship is about God, worship is not about us. Worship is not about us. And this is what I want to touch on in the, in the time that we have left to us tonight. There are uh, three ways, that uh, there are at least three ways, I should say, say, that worship gets off track and off center and out of focus. And if the worship of our church is to be healthy and vital and spiritually edifying as an experience, then we will need to be on our guard, both personally and corporately, that we are not making worship about us and our aesthetic and our taste, but that it's about God and all of His greatness. So the, the first obstacle that I want us to think about, um, I'm going to call it perfunctory worship. Perfunctory worship. This is where worship is offered to God, but it's merely a routine. It's what I do every Sunday morning and Sunday night, or you know, if, if, um, if I come on Wednesday nights, it's what I do on Wednesday nights. It's, it's when it's that time of the week that I've set aside and I just sort of in a robotic, mechanical kind of a way, I go and I show up and I do what the acts of worship are. This is where worship is offered to God merely as a routine. It's hastily done. Sometimes it's done very superficially, even casually. And this is the kind of worship that is always off track. It's always off track. This happens a lot of times when anything gets so familiar that it loses its punch after a while. People get casual at times with their spouses, which means that they take them for granted. Which means, when you say that you take somebody for granted, it means that you stop seeing what's impressive about them. When you take somebody for granted, you begin to lose that sense of what's special about them and unique about them. And people that get casual with their spouses... After a while, that relationship for them begins to lose its pizzazz and the marriage loses its spark and begin, people begin to get bored with one another and they don't treat each other in special, exclusive, exceptional, and distinctive ways. And that is not a very good marriage, is it? And the funny thing is, the same thing can happen in worship. Over in the Old Testament uh, book of 2 Samuel, David has been made king over all of Israel, and he makes Jerusalem his capital after he has taken it away from the Jebusites. And David, because he's a man after God's own heart, he wants God to be at the center of all he is going to do as a king, and so he sets out with 30,000 men from Baalah of Judah to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And they put it on a cart that's pulled by oxen, and they set off. And as the story goes, they arrived at this place called the threshing floor of Nacon. And here, when they reached that threshing floor, the oxen stumble, and Uzzah, who is walking beside the cart with the ark on it, reaches out and he takes hold of that ark. And an incredibly surprising thing takes place. Verse 7 of 2 Samuel 6, The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. The Lord's anger, the oxen, cart, 
They hit the threshing floor of Nacon. The oxen stumble. The cart begins to move. The ark begins to topple. Uzzah reaches out and touches it, and the anger burns against Uzzah because of this irreverent act, and God strikes him down, and he dies there beside the ark of God. The incredible story. The point is, is that the Ark of the Covenant was more than just a box or a piece of holy furniture. It was more than just this weapon that you put out in front of the armies of Israel as they went out to meet their enemies, ensuring that, that they would have victory. That didn't work out too well for them. The Ark represented the presence of God, which meant that right there was the holiest place on earth. The holiest place on earth and there were special instruction on handling the ark involving putting poles through rings at the corners of the ark so that no human hand ever touched the ark itself and it was to be carried only by levites but the ark had also been in uzzah's family for a very very long long time you'll remember going all the way back to to first samuel chapter 5 the philistines have taken the ark of god in battle but they've sent it back to Israel when God brought this devastation upon them. And then over in 1 Samuel chapter 6, after Israel gets the ark back, 70 men die when they open it up and they look inside of it, and now the entire town is, is scared to death. And so the elders of the city decide, this is what we're going to do with the ark. We're going to park it in the garage of Abinadab, and that's where it stays for all of those years until David these decades later, decides to pull the tarp off of the top of the ark and to bring it back to Jerusalem. And Uzzah is a son of Abinadab, where this ark has been. And Uzzah, along with his brother Ahio, have lived a lot of years with the ark in their garage. And the ark had become such a familiar fixture in the Abinadab household that Uzzah, in his heart, became casual with the ark. And everyone, I mean, when you think about what's going on here, everyone in this entourage, all of these people, the thousands of people that are with David, that are going to Jerusalem with the ark, every single one of them in that entourage was guilty of not transporting the ark in the right way. But it's Uzzah, because of irreverence and his casual, perfunctory, careless, disrespectful way of reaching out to touch it, and he was struck down. I have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm happy that God does not make it a habit of striking people dead when they are in His presence and they treat Him flippantly. When we come together on Sundays, we come as a family into the presence of a Holy Father full of mystery full of awesomeness. And I think that we have to make a heroic effort to not let our worship become perfunctory. That it's something that we want to speed through, that we do it hastily, that we do it superficially, that it's something that we do and then we can move on in life. Now, at, at, at some point... Uh, I think it's really important that we talk about how you prepare yourself for worship. But one of the things that, that I think is truly important is that as, as we think about the obstacles to worship, that we see that it, we're either going to be perfunctory in our attitudes and, and our behavior and the way that, that we worship God, 
or we have to or we have to see that there is a part of our heart that is seeking with all of its strength to magnify God and to worship him because of the experience and the discovery of him but then there's a second kind of obstacle to worship it's not that we just treat God flippantly and and sort of superficially but we sort of get sucked into this consumer-oriented worship. I think that sometimes we're so used of going from room to room to room to room and sitting through things that worship is just one more of those events that we just sit through. And so if we're not careful, we will approach worship with this heart of a consumer and not that of a worship worshiper. We will, in a sense, struggle with, with becoming connoisseurs of worship, that we have to be wowed. That there's a certain kind of aesthetic that only if that aesthetic is there is worship going to appeal to us. That we've got to have that wow factor. We're going to treat worship like we're going to the movies. Ellen and I like to go to the movies and every once in a while the first thing that I ask her or she asks me after seeing a, a movie is something like this. Did you like that? Or what did you think of that? And we'll talk about it and break it down. We went to the first Star Wars, or uh, we went to the, the, the latest Star Wars movie uh, over on Christmas Day, brother wanted to take the entire family out, so we went to see uh, Star Wars. And there was a part of me that uh, when we were sitting around the table later that night talking about it, there was a part of me that said, uh, you know, how does, how does a kid who's never held a lightsaber in his hand all of a sudden become an expert? How does this girl who didn't even know she had the force five minutes later able to beat up a guy who's been training with the force? And, and you get the point. We just started breaking this thing down and tearing it apart, right? But then I stopped and I said, but you know what? I just loved it. I thought it was, one, it was a great movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it. If we're not careful, we'll do the, the, the former without ever experiencing the latter. I believe it's incredibly important that we manage our thoughts carefully in this regard because of this truth. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. To whom, God is speaking, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of His great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. We are not shopping for feelings and emotions and searching for the store with the best deal. When we come to worship, we have to be really careful not to have this consumer attitude that says, if we don't sing the songs that I want the way that I want them sung, then I'm not singing. Or the preacher needs to be entertaining or uplifting or whatever, or the lights and the temperature and the technology had better be excellent or I'm going to be disappointed. What we say instead is when we get to worship, we are going to respond to the fullness of God's being to the fullness of His holiness, to the fullness of His righteousness, to the fullness of His grace that we have experienced every day. And we're going to respond to Him with every resource at our disposal, our minds and our hearts, our voices, our bodies. And when we do that, we will find that God is indeed very, very close. You know, sometimes you will come to worship and be just absolutely overwhelmed by the holiness of God and you will say to yourself like Isaiah did, Woe, is, is, woe to me, I, I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Or at other times, you will just be completely undone by the compassion <clears throat> and the grace of God, like the simple woman in Luke chapter 7. There he turns towards the woman, and he says to Simon, this is Jesus 
says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And at another time, you might be seized by joy just like David on the day that he danced with all of his might before the Lord in 2 Samuel 6. But here's the thing that we're not going to do. We're not going to be consumers and connoisseurs of worship at Mac. This is not about us. It's about God. And then the last thing is, we, I, I think that we have, we have to be careful about nostalgia invoking worship. E- emotions are a gift that God has given to all human beings. And they're great. They're great. Emotions enhance the human experience. I mean, just think about, about the difference in the experience of love of a child or a dog or a spouse or a friend or, or anyone truly loves you. The difference in that experience because of emotions from that if it was just intellectual. I mean, it's the difference between being Mr. Spock and being Captain Kirk. I, I, I confess, I, I always get choked up. And, and if you're close enough and, and your eyesight's you know, good enough, maybe from the back you see it, but I, I always get choked up when we sing the, the Magnificat. Usually I'm standing right over here and uh, we're singing the Magnificat. As you know, it begins with, with one part and then a second part. And the third part that comes in is the tenor. And I always get choked up when I hear Jeff Glass with his tenor voice singing over here, our God alone is mighty, mighty. God alone has done great things. God alone is worthy, worthy. Holy is His name. And who doesn't get emotional when we sing, how great is our God? Sing with me, how great is our God? And all, all will see how great, how great our, is our God. These songs thrill us. And choke us up sometimes. But emotions of nostalgia are not necessarily worship. It could be only a sentimental connection to a song that evokes a warm memory of the past. And when we think, I can't worship if I don't know the hymns, that just might be a sign of that. And nostalgia is not a sin. Ellen will tell you that, uh, that uh, I'm, I'm an incredibly nostalgic person. Um, Man, I, I would keep every report card, every piece of paper that our kids ever drew on for the rest of my life and put it in a box and I would, I would sleep on top of it. Nostalgia is not a sin, but it's not worship either. If God is infinite, and He is, then might there be an infinite number of songs that express worship to Him? And if God is still active in His creation, and He is, might there be new personal experiences of His nearness that changes forever? I think the answer is yes. That's why David says, sing to Him a new song. Psalm 33. In Psalm 40, he says, He put a new song in my mouth, 
a hymn of praise to our God. Later on, the psalmist says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Psalm 98, Sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. Isaiah 42, Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. The singing, the singing are, are ways to express not just truths, but emotional truths to God, whether they're old hymns or new hymns. The old hymns have such tremendous theology, a, a, a lot of them, and they, and they have a history to them, and, they, and, they're, and they're words to songs and melodies that we know well, and they, we sometimes sing them easily because we have sung them much. But there are also experiences of God if we're walking with God and walking with God's Spirit and there are things like the fruit of the Spirit that are blossoming in our life, there are new experiences of God that are everyday, new experiences of God that we observe in other people's life. Their experiences of God, the transformation of their life, the overcoming of sin, the, 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 the resolution of faith in their life when they're faced with some kind of, of, of a tough decision or a tough moment or a tough day ahead of them. And when we see that, It's worth praising God about because His greatness has come near someone or to us. And so we sing those new songs too because they're expressions of the fact that God is still active in His people and more importantly, very active personally in our own lives. Worship is not about us. Worship is about God. And worship is the main event, the declaring the glories of God, experiencing His presence in the Word as it is read, preached and pondered as it's sung. I mean, what is more important than that? And that's why the psalmist says, sing the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And it's an opportunity for us Breathe deeply into our lungs as we think about the greatness of God come near and to, to, to sing forth with all of our power and all of our strength and all of our might that God is good, that God has come near, that God is, is faithful to every promise, that God has been magnified in our eyes, that we see Him larger and in seeing Him larger, know Him better and knowing Him better, we have a, an experience and a discovery of His greatness that when we spiritually driven people, when we encounter that, the thing that is most natural to us as spiritual people is to praise and make that praise glorious. We'll also have some shepherds down here at the front. If there are spiritual needs that you might have tonight that you'd like to share with the shepherds, we'll invite you to come down and talk to them too as we stand and praise God. I stand to praise you, but 